0: Please join me as we ask God to help us to understand his word. Please pray with me. Almighty God, our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for your magnificent love to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that as we look together at your wisdom for love, that you would fill us with your spirit, enable us to be wise lovers and help us to know better your great love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Historically, environmentalists have been opposed to nuclear energy. But today, many environmentalists are changing their mind. They say we need to reconsider. Apparently, nuclear power is at present the only viable alternative to coal power. And it has incredible potential. Uranium is amazingly powerful. Let me quote from a recent article. The benefits of nuclear energy begin with the unparalleled energy density of the fuel used. Just one uranium fuel pellet, roughly the size of the tip of an adult's little finger, contains the same amount of energy as 17,000 cubic feet of natural gas, 1,780 pounds of coal or 149 gallons of oil in that much uranium. Apparently, nuclear power has the potential to fuel our world with far less greenhouse gas and other pollution effects. Its immense power could bring great good to our world. It could bring us light and heat. It could power all the modern conveniences that we enjoy. But, of course, there are big risks, aren't there? When you are dealing with such powerful stuff, there are dangers... You don't want nuclear power getting into the wrong hands. The uh, atomic bombs in World War II showed us the extraordinary, destructive power of nuclear energy. And you only have to mention place names like uh, Chernobyl or Fukushima to remember the extreme risks that nuclear energy can bring. Nuclear energy, it's immensely powerful. It can do great good or great harm. And so everyone agrees on one thing... If you are going to use it, you need to be very, very careful. You need to find uh, safe ways of mining uranium. You need to build safe nuclear reactors. And you need safe ways of storing nuclear waste. It is powerful stuff, and so you need to handle with care. I reckon Song of Songs has given us a similar message about love. Love. Love is powerful stuff. It has the potential to bring great joy and benefit to your life. It has the potential to bring great sadness and pain to your life. And so you need to be careful. You don't want to mess with it. As the refrain has said, hopefully it's just about memorised in people's minds by now, don't arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And each verse of the song so far has reminded us of stuff we need to sort out before we are ready for love. The first verse, you may remember, it reminded us that we need to be ready to offer secure love, to meet insecurity with kindness. Second verse reminded us we need to deal with foxes, address problems and issues in a relationship. Third verse reminded us of the need to hold out for love. to to value virginity and to offer exclusive commitment. Fourth verse reminded us of the need to communicate our love. And meanwhile, we've watched as our lovers have gradually unravelled the tangled web of their relationship until now, finally, after eight chapters, our couple are together looking back and she is lying safe in his arms. And now we begin the last section of the song with a question. We don't know who's asking the question. and Maybe it's friends, like the NIV says. Whoever it is, uh, they see our couple coming up out of the wilderness, out of the desert. Song of Songs, chapter 8 and verse 5. Have a look with me. Song of Songs, chapter 8 and verse 5. Who is this? Coming up from the desert, leaning on her lover. Now, just a couple of things to notice about this question. Very important things. First It's almost the same question as we heard back in chapter 3, verse 6. Come back with me and have a look. Chapter 3 and verse 6. See if you remember what this was about, where the question was asked before. Chapter 3, verse 6. Who is this coming up from the desert like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant? Do you remember that scene? That was the girl dreaming, wasn't it? She was dreaming uh, about the woman coming up from the desert in Solomon's carriage, do you remember, on their wedding day. Well, now here she is, coming up from the desert again. Only now it's not in her dream, now it's in real life. She's leaning on her lover, coming up from the desert. In other words, I think, in context, the dream has become reality. Our couple are, at long last, married. But notice also the imagery. Where have they come from? The desert. The desert. The wilderness, it's the same word used for the desert that Israel wandered in for 40 years before they finally came into the promised land. Now, a number of people have noticed and pointed out to me during this series that the song has lots of promised land imagery. The lovers have described each other in promised land terms. So, for example, one of the most famous expressions about the promised land is that it's a land of milk and honey. You remember that expression, don't you? Come come back with me to chapter 4 and verse 11. Chapter 4 and verse 11. The man is describing the girl. He says, Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The lovers have seen each other as being like the promised land. And now here in this final scene, they move in from the desert. And where do they go? They come into a garden. Uh, This final scene is described as being an apple orchard, a vineyard and a garden. Of course, in Old Testament terms, that's taking us even beyond the promised land, isn't it? We're supposed to be thinking Garden of Eden here, where Adam and Eve were together, both naked, not ashamed, where they were safe and secure in each other's arms. Well, now here in the garden, the woman speaks to her husband. She talks about... How they are doing what previous generations have done. They are continuing their inheritance in the land. She has roused his love in the same place where his mother gave him birth. Their love is continuing the generations, the inheritance of his family. The next part of verse 5. Under the apple tree I roused you. There, your mother conceived you. There, she who was in labour gave you birth. And now the woman has a request for her lover. Her lover. She wants him to promise to always love her, even more than his mum. She wants him to put her like a seal over his heart. Now a seal, of course, is not a seal, it's, it's a stamp seal, okay? It's, it's like a stamp of ownership. Uh, she, wants to be, she wants to be tattooed over his heart, so to speak. Uh, she wants to own his heart, Now also his arm, she wants to own his arm. In other words, she wants him to do what he does for her, for her alone. Verse 6, place me like a seal, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. The wife wants her husband's undying love and she gives her reason, it's because love is so powerful. She says love is as strong as death. She couldn't escape the love that she feels any more than she could escape the grave. Uh, if he were unfaithful to her, her jealousy would be as unavoidable and, and, as, and as deadly as the grave. She says that uh, her love burns like a flame, like the very flame of God, as, as you'll see in the footnote in a second. She says that nothing will be able to stop her love. It cannot be washed away. And she says the love they have is so Valuable, it is priceless. Continuing in verse six, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Or literally, as, as if you jump down to the footnote, you'll see the literal translation: like the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Their love is so powerful, so demandingly exclusive, so burning, so unstoppable, so valuable, that she demands absolute commitment. She wants to own his heart. But it's not just a one-sided thing. She's demanded his absolute commitment... But in return, she talks about how she has saved herself exclusively for him. She is his alone. Uh, The woman now sings. I know I had the man read this, but I think it's the woman singing. The reason I had the man read it is because it's the brothers speaking. But it's the woman recalling her brothers speaking. If you followed that now. The woman sings about how her brothers protected her for her wedding day. They decided that if she was a wall, that is, if she was committed to be a virgin until marriage, they would help and honour her in that. They would be another brick in the wall, so to speak. Uh, They also decided that if she was a door, that is, if she was gullible enough to fall for commitment-phobic men, that they would enclose her and make it as difficult as possible for her to open. Verse 8. This is the, 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 the woman recalling what her brothers said. We have a young sister, and her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister on the day, for the day she has spoken for, for her wedding day? If she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her, honor her. If she is a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. Her brothers were committed to help her. But she says she didn't need them. She says she was a wall. She was committed to be a virgin until her wedding. And so, she says, she has brought contentment to her husband. And by the way, that word contentment, very important biblical word. It's the Hebrew word for, for peace and for wholeness, the, the word shalom. If you know any Hebrew words, that's probably the one Hebrew word you should know. She says she's kept herself exclusively for her husband, and so she has brought him shalom. Verse 10 I am a wall, and my breasts are like towers. Thus I have become, in his eyes, like one bringing shalom. The girl then compares herself to Solomon. Now, that may seem a little left field, but uh, in fact, the name Solomon has the word Shalom in it. It's shalomo is, uh, is Solomon. It's, it means his peace. So that's, that's the connection here. Uh, the girl starts talking about Solomon. She says that Solomon had such a big vineyard that he had to let it out to tenants. But she says, my own vineyard is mine. Now, the NIV has added the words to give, I think, wrongly. Uh, the vineyard, I think, refers to their spouses, their husbands, their wives. Uh, Solomon had hundreds of wives many of them for profit, for political or financial or strategic gain. Solomon had so many wives that not only did he get income from them, but he also had to call in other people to look after them and pay them. This girl has just one husband, but he is hers alone. Verse 11. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Hamon. He led out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its, for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver, but my own vineyard is mine. And she goes on to say that she doesn't envy Solomon one little bit. He can have all his political gain and his financial gain and his strategic gain. He can have all his hundreds and hundreds of wives. She will have her one husband over his thousand wives any day of the week. She says, you can keep what is yours, Solomon. Still in verse 12. The thousand shekels are for you, O Solomon. Two hundred are for those who tend its fruit. She'd rather be herself than Solomon any day of the week. Song ends. Uh, with the man calling the girl in the garden. He says, I want to hear your voice, alone, without all these friends around. And she responds, yeah, let's get out of here. Let's blow this joint. Adios, amigos, verse 13. He says, you who dwell in the gardens with friends in attendance, let me hear your voice. And she replies, come away, my lover, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. And so the song ends with our lovers walking in the garden and heading off into the sunset. All right, can you see what's here in this last part of the song? The girl and the man have come in from the wilderness. They're now walking in the garden. The go- girl calls on her husband to give her his undying love because love is so powerful and unstoppable and valuable. She talks about how she has offered him her exclusive love. She waited for him and so she brought him peace. She says that she prefers having her one exclusive relationship to the thousand wives of Solomon and then the lovers head off into the sunset. I reckon it's a really precious ending, myself. And notice for all the erotic sounding language of the song, it doesn't end with a torrid sex scene. Sex is not the culmination of this song. No, no. The song ends with a walk in the garden. The song ends with a statement of commitment, with a statement of faithfulness. It is precious, isn't it? It's beautiful because it shows us that love is way bigger than sex. Love can actually give you a taste of the garden. Okay. Well, let's think about applying this passage to ourselves. Again, as you can see on your outline, I have a wisdom application and a gospel application. So, first, the wisdom application. Our friends, love is a powerful thing. Like nuclear energy, it has profound possibility for good or for evil. Love is a powerful thing. You need to handle it very, very carefully. And the best love, the wisest love, is exclusive love, committed love. Friends, let Solomon have his thousand wives, you're better off with just one. Let let Liz Taylor have her many husbands, you're better off with just one. The best thing you can do for your love life is to offer faithfulness and commitment Stop checking out the grass on the other side. Stop looking around. Set your lover as a seal over your heart and your arm. Friends, don't be deceived about this. If you are monogamous, if you have only one husband, one wife, you are not missing out. You are, at least potentially, as happy and fulfilled as anyone can be in love. That is God's wisdom. And survey after survey shows it to be true. Back in the 1970s, Red Book magazine had a survey and they discovered what they thought was an amazing fact. They discovered that religious people have significantly higher sexual satisfaction than non-religious people. Recently, the University of Chicago came up with similar results. Basically, women who go to church have better sex than women who read Clio. In a recent book called How to Make Bad Relationships Better... The author quotes from numerous surveys that show that people who have only ever had the one sexual partner in their life have the most satisfying sex life. A 1992 survey by Christianity Today showed that people who have had multiple sexual partners tend to be significantly less happy in marriage and more likely to commit adultery. Don't be fooled by the movies or the TV. The research is in. God's wisdom, as you would expect, is true. Sex and love work best in an exclusive, binding relationship. Now, of course, this is not true 100% of the time. There are monogamous people who are miserable. And there are people who have had histories who are able to then have a happy love life. In a sinful, fallen world, love doesn't always work out. Love never works out exactly as you would like, even when we do offer commitment and faithfulness. Uh, this song doesn't give us promises from God, it's wisdom. It, it tells you what will usually happen, what will generally happen, what will probably happen. But this is what will usually happen. The best, most satisfying love happens in a relationship that is exclusive and binding. So, friends, if you are single, wait, hold out. For your husband or wife, don't arouse love until it desires. If you are married, be faithful. Work hard on your relationship. Offer secure love. Sort out the foxes. Communicate your love. Love is too powerful to mess with. It can bring so much pleasure and joy. It can cause a world of pain. It can make your life so much better. It can make your life a misery. It's like nuclear energy. So much potential for good or ill, we need to be very, very careful. So that's the wisdom application. Treat love with respect. Keep it within the bounds of an exclusive, binding relationship. Now for the gospel application. Now this picture of our lovers' relationship here, it is very theologically rich. This relationship, it moves them from the wilderness to the garden. Uh, This relationship for this couple, it's like a taste of the promised land. It's like a taste of the Garden of Eden. As they are able to rest secure in their relationship, as they are able to be naked and not ashamed, it is a taste of heaven. It's an experience of, of the very flame of the Lord. An experience that gives them a glimpse of what God himself is like. An experience that brings them shalom. Those are big claims, don't you reckon? In terms of the Bible, big claims for a a relationship. But if you think about it, it's beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful because it gives us a glimpse of our future of love in Christ. Love is the very flame of Yahweh. Or as the New Testament puts it, God is love. Because of his love... God has given us his son, Jesus, who has died on the cross to bear our sin, who who has risen again and is coming again to bring us to a new heaven, a new earth, to the, the ultimate promised land, the ultimate Garden of Eden, where we will have shalom. But here's the amazing thing. The power and the passion of romantic love, with all its goodness, with all its joy, and with all the bad parts taken away, is just a little taste of what that shalom will be like. What's heaven going to be like? It will be like the perfect romance. The perfect relationship. Jesus says there'll be no marrying or giving in in marriage in heaven. That's because every relationship in heaven will be even better than the best possible relationship now. Friends, let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. In heaven, everyone will love you. God will be there and he will love you better than you have ever been loved. All God's people will be there and they will love you better than you have ever been loved. You'll be different, of course, transformed, your sin taken away, much more lovable than you now are. Nothing more to be ashamed of. And, And, of course, you yourself will perfectly love God and his people. But just think about it for a second in the new heaven and earth, everyone will love you. The the best possible exclusive marriage relationship will pale in comparison. Everyone will cherish you, treasure you, delight in you. I reckon it's a good hope to have, don't you? I think it's not a bad way to spend eternity. And I think it's a beautiful ending to this love song. Especially, especially for those of you who found this series tough going. I, I know there are people here who have found this series really, really hard. Because all this talk about passion and pleasure and the arousal that comes from being in love, for some of you it's been like rubbing salt into a wound. Because you don't feel as if you have got what the song is describing. Well, friends, let me say this to you. Be encouraged. A day is coming when everything that is painful about love in this world will be gone. If you are hurting from being single, a day is coming when your loneliness will be gone and you will be comforted and loved better than you can imagine. If you feel trapped in a hard marriage, a day is coming when the heartache will be over. And you will be comforted and loved better than you can imagine. If death has torn your lover away from you, a day is coming. When there will be no more mourning or crying and God himself will wipe every tear from your eye. And even if you are enjoying the passion of being in love here and now, a day is coming when your present joy will be so greatly surpassed you can't even imagine it. When we will know a day, we will know love that will be deeper and richer and more exhilarating than anything in Song of Songs. We will know a love that will be more wonderful than we ever thought possible. And it will never, ever end. For love is the very flame of the Lord. The promised land that is before us is a place of love. The garden that is before us is a place of love. Jesus has set his people as a seal over his heart and over his arm. The love of Christ for his people is stronger than the grave. And friends, he is coming. He is coming for his bride. Let's pray. Mighty God, we thank and praise you that love will never end, that the greatest of all things, greater than faith, greater than hope, is love. We thank and praise you that you are love. We thank and praise you that you have shown your love to us in Jesus. And we thank and praise you that our future is a future of love. Father, please help us to be wise lovers here and now, but more than anything, please help us to hope and long for that day when we will know true love with you forever. We pray it in Jesus' name.